First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Chapter four continues the theme of God's grace in submission and suffering. Some of you might be familiar with a very old hymn. It's called Live for Jesus. Some of you might have sang it a long time ago. The words are, live for Jesus, that's what matters. And when other houses crumble, mine is strong. Live for Jesus, that's what matters. That you see the light in me and come along. The song reminds us of, of the passage. And when other houses are crumbling, mine is strong. Remember, if Peter has encouraged us in anything, it is the reality that the Christian life is supposed to radically differ from the ordinary pattern of life. A life lived for Jesus matters. And when you live your life for Jesus, guess what? People will see inside of your soul. They'll see that there's something radically, profoundly, substantially different about you. And they'll want to come along. Or they won't. The unbeliever and the ungodly will come along or they will reject Jesus and they will reject you. The unbelieving world cares little for godly living for Christ or for righteousness. And a godly life may inspire, but here's what we've also discovered, that a godly life can infuriate and convict and demand a similar life or face judgment. Now, for the unbelieving world... Their response is to mock, to ridicule, to abuse. And in the mocking and in the ridicule and in the abuse, if they can't make you go away, then they'll find a new way to make you go away. And in the ancient world and in parts of this world, the believer lives in the ever-present threat of persecution and even martyrdom. You see, living for Jesus isn't easy. I've got to admit that it is easier some places than others. 
You might think it difficult in your school and you might think it difficult at work and you might think it difficult in the circumstances that you currently face. You might think it's difficult in your marriage, but make no mistake about it. For many people, they live under the constant threat, not just of suffering, but even of of annihilation. In order for the believer to bear the suffering and persecution, Peter, in this particular passage, calls us to arm ourselves. But we don't arm ourselves with worldly weapons. We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And what does it mean to arm yourself with the mind of Christ? Well, Peter is going to call the reader to the fact that this is in part the way that you you arm yourself with the mind of Christ. And that is... Prepare to die. Prepare to die to yourself. Prepare to cease from sin in verse 1. Peter reminds the reader to discover and do God's will for the rest of your life in verse 2. Peter wants us to be done with sin. And we've had enough of it, he says in verse 3. We have to get used to the idea that the world is going to see you as peculiar and bizarre in verses 4 and 5. We look now at the example of the suffering saints and the dead saints who have preceded us in this journey that we call the Christian life. Submission and suffering for the Christian isn't simply a noble duty. Now Peter is going to reveal something, that it's a powerful provision, if you'll allow it. It will become a powerful provision for you to live for Jesus. It begins with denying ourselves and ceasing from sin. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now remember, in the opening line, the word therefore connects the previous passage with the current passage. And the previous passage began in chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, where it said, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted, Be courteous. All the way to verse 18. For Christ has suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. In other words, if God's will includes pain and suffering because you did what was right instead of what was wrong, Because you honored God instead of dishonored God. Because you obeyed God rather than disobey God. You did what was right instead of what was evil. And now you're suffering the consequences of obedience. Peter's response? You're providing a witness to the unbelieving world. 
Peter introduces another element. Not only does suffering and persecution provide us an opportunity to witness to the grace and the power and the glory and the love and the majesty of the Lord Jesus, it provides an opportunity for the Christian to deny himself or herself and to avoid sin. And so the key phrase in the passage is arm yourself. And by the way, it's the Greek word hablitzo. Now you may not understand that. It's a military metaphor. It means to heavily arm yourself. In law enforcement, we might say, leave the light arms at home and bring the heavy artillery. That's exactly what it means. The military metaphor, Kenneth Weiss, the great Greek scholar, says Peter exhorts the saints to arm themselves with the same mind that Christ had regarding unjust punishment. The Greek word translated arm yourself was used of a Greek soldier putting on the heavy armor, taking the heavy weapons. The noun of the same root was used of a heavily armed foot soldier who carried a pike and a very large shield. The Christian needs the heaviest of armor because he needs to be able to withstand the attack of the enemy of his soul. Paul has a similar passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. But the word picture that Weist offers reminds ourselves of something that we're not accidental tourists. We're not curious visitors. We're not casual or cultural Christians living on the earth, taking a vacation on this planet. Peter reminds us that we're soldiers. And the battle is raging all around us. And you see, we live in a culture and a society where danger is not real because you can turn on the TV and you can turn it off and you can see the battle, but it doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem that it really is happening. But guess what? The danger is real and the enemy is determined. And Jesus died not simply to gain a temporary advantage over the dominion of sin, but to equip us to be able to Fight and to be able to overcome and to be able to prevail. And since, here's what Peter writes, and since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, it provides the key to the passage's intentions. Listen carefully. Jesus died for us. The implication is we are in Christ. We are identified with Jesus. We are legally free from the penalty of sin. And since we are in Christ, we can legally regard ourselves as dead to sin and alive in Christ. We are not bound by sin's penalty. And therefore, we are given permission, listen carefully, to resist sin's power. That's the point. And suffering becomes a tool and a resource to resist sin's power. The suffering and death of Jesus led to his glorious and eternal resurrection. Now think carefully, connect the dots. Our suffering and death will lead to a glorious outcome. Now think for a moment. We are not evangelical jihadists. 
We don't long for martyrdom. We're not looking for an opportunity to put our life on the line. Peter's statement, your life is already on the line. You don't have to welcome the pain and you don't have to welcome the suffering. You don't have to welcome the persecution. Jesus has already made it clear. Paul has made it already clear. Peter has made it already clear. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are Christians who want to put away sin and put selfishness behind us and enter into a new and victorious way of living in our our service to the Lord. That's the point. The mind of Christ in this sense means have the same intention, have the same courage, have the same attitude that Jesus embraced concerning suffering and obedience. We sang it in worship. I want to live for you. And I want to live for you alone. Do you remember what Jesus said? That he lived for his father. That he would know what his father wanted and that he would be able to do what his father wanted him to do. So what does that little phrase mean? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now taken all by itself, someone might wrongly think that suffering alone cleanses people from sin. And maybe you've had that experience or maybe someone has even said that to you. Haven't I suffered enough? Haven't I put up with enough? No one should have to put up with what I've put up with. Doesn't the pain and the suffering that I've already experienced prepare me or qualify me for for heaven? No. Suffering alone doesn't cleanse people from sin. Jesus had no need to be cleansed from sin because he was without sin. And remember what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. So what is he talking about? Perhaps the best way to think about the passage, again, is in the context. The person who suffers for doing what's right. The person who's willing to obey God rather than disobey God. The person who's willing to believe the gospel rather than reject the gospel. This person, despite suffering, demonstrates the willingness to make a clean break with sin. The Christian believes the gospel. The Christian wants to make a clean break with the former lifestyle of sin. Now the Bible teaches that we're enslaved to sin, but we're Christians. Jesus is our master. Sin used to be our master, but now we have a new master. We no longer serve sin as our master. Again, remember the context. Peter's been discussing the subject of suffering and submission, and most people don't want to welcome ridicule and mockery and abuse and persecution. We can give into it and reward our flesh. We can refuse to give into it, And reward our spirit. 
If we simply give in to sin, we doom ourselves. But if we refuse to give in to sin, if we put on the mind of Jesus, if we deny our flesh, and if we suffer the consequences for denying our flesh and obeying the Lord, we deny sin, we embrace a lifestyle of righteousness, our suffering for Christ, our suffering with Christ, delivers us from sin and causes us to cease from sin. When we do the right thing rather than the wrong thing, we're living for Jesus. We live for Jesus and the cause of Christ and we live for righteousness. We begin to establish a pattern of obedience. Now I want you to think for a moment. The person who identifies with Jesus, the moment that you identify with Jesus, you decide that you're going to choose what Jesus chooses. You're going to deny what Jesus denied. You're going to affirm what Jesus affirms. And so what did Jesus choose? He chose to listen to his father. He chose to obey his father. He chose to deny himself. He chose to pick up his cross. Remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said, those who would follow me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so when he denies himself, when he takes up his cross, he's picking up the instrument of death, and the direction that he's going is to Jerusalem, in fact to die. Jesus chooses the path of submission. He chooses the path of suffering. He chooses the path of sacrifice. Why? Is sin his master? No, it's your master. Jesus does this so that you can have a new master. So that he can be your master. So that now you have the freedom to love him and follow him and obey him. Peter's going to point out other benefits. We don't spend our lives overcome by the former desires in verse 2. We live for the will of God in verse 2. We're willing to close the book on godless living in verse 3. So suffering purifies the believer identifies us with Jesus. And when life is easy, we sometimes drift into a lifestyle of selfishness and sin. But suffering will change your value and it will change your goal. Like gold tried in the fire, the trial burns us and sifts us and purifies us until the singular substance of value is left. And what do you suppose the singular Singular substance of value is to do what he wants instead of what I want. To love what he loves instead of what I love. The singular substance becomes knowing him, loving him, discerning his will, and doing his will. That's the point. Suffering can cause us to hate sin and love the Lord more and more in verse 1. Life is short in verses 2 and 3. God's judgment is certain in verses 4 through 6. Connect the dots. So he moves to discovering and doing God's will. Look at verse 2. It says that he should no longer or that he no longer should live 
the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, Peter is going to contrast the will of God with the lusts of men. And in order to understand the language, once again, let me remind you of something. That when the Bible speaks of the flesh, it's not talking about the muscle and bone. It's not talking about the organs that cling to your bones. It's talking about the sum and the substance of everything that you are apart from Jesus. It's all of the desires. It's all of the life. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. The believer is armed with the proper intention in verse 1. Strengthened in faith with a firm resolve to resist sin and obey God. And now we can understand human desires and resist them. That's the point. Christians often define their lives by B.C. and A.D. B.C., of course, before Christ. A.D. is a corruption of Anno Domini, our Lord, or in the year of our Lord. We think of our life in terms of everything that we were before we became a Christian. And we think of our lives in terms of everything we are after we became a Christian. And for each and every one of you, or at least for most of you, for most of you, You can draw a line right down the middle of your life before you became a Christian and your life after you became a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. After we become Christians, do we we cease from the life of sin? Do we never make a mistake or a sin? Do we ever do anything wicked or sinful or disobedient? Of course we do wicked and sinful and disobedient things. But the reality is, the reality is, before we became a Christian... We didn't resist sin, we simply gave into it. After we become a Christian, we at least are able to recognize that this is something that God doesn't want, and then we struggle. We want to live our lives not according to human desires. And so here, when he's talking about human desires, he's talking not about just regular, normal desires. He's talking about human desires that are inconsistent with the word of God and the will of God. The Chinese people have a helpful proverb. They say, great souls have wills. Feeble ones have only wishes. The idea being, well, you know, I wish I could be a better Christian. I wish I could honor God. I wish I could stop living a life of rebellion and sinful disobedience. But Peter says, no, give your will to God. God will give you power. The the church father Augustine wrote that, quote, will is to grace as the horse is to the rider. We can update it for modern times. Will is to grace what the driver is to the car. Get into the car. When you push the gas, what what will happen? You go. When you hit the brake, what will happen? You will stop. Now, let's just assume that everything is equal and your car actually works and your car actually functions. And when you put the car in reverse and you step on the gas, what will happen? Yeah, you're going to go backwards. 
But what if you pray with all of your might and go, Oh God, I just pray in Jesus' name. I pray in Jesus' name that when I put the car in reverse and I step on the gas, I'm going to go forward. What are your chances of it going forward? It's an idiotic prayer. It really is. And the reason why it's an idiotic prayer is because when you pray, Lord, change me, that's not an idiotic prayer. When you pray, Lord, change my will, that is an idiotic prayer. You want to know why? Because God isn't going to change your will. There's a reason why God gave you a will. It's so that you could choose freely. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a tragic mistake that he gave you the ability to choose or choose otherwise. Remember, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so God gives you permission to voluntarily love him. To make the choice in your heart to love him or obey him. We abandon personal desire and we seek to discover and then do the will of God. That's the point that he's making in verse 2. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Well, what if the will of God is, what if it takes me to a place of pain? What if the will of God takes me to a place of suffering? What if the will of God takes me to a place of pain and suffering and I don't want to go? The Bible says he'll give you the grace to sustain you. Remember when Paul prayed in order to get rid of his thorn, he said, I spoke to the Lord, and then the Lord spoke to me. I prayed not once, not twice. I prayed three times, and each time the Lord responded with, My grace is sufficient. My strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Again, Augustine cried out to God. Augustine wrote, quote, When I vacillated about my decision to serve the Lord my God, it was I who willed, and I who willed not, and nobody else. I was fighting against myself. All you asked was that I cease to want what I willed. And begin to want what you willed. What's God asking you to do? What is God asking you to do? God is asking you to say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my desire, but your desire. You may wish for God's will... But now you must will God's will. You can make the choice. I will honor you instead of dishonor you. I will obey you instead of disobey you. Someone once said, quote, Inside the will of God, there is no failure. Outside the will of God, there is no success. Whatever you 
think is failure and whatever you think is success isn't contained in what you want to do. It is contained in what God wants to do through Christ in you. Isidore of Seville wrote, quote, The whole science of the saints consists in finding out and following God's will. That's your lifelong dream and that's your lifelong goal. God, what is it that you want from me? What is it that you don't want from me? Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Lord, what is it that you don't want me to do? C.S. Lewis wrote, there are two kinds of people. He didn't say Italian people and people who wish they were. But I think he really meant it in his heart. No, he said, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God say, all right, have it your way. You thought Burger King made that up, didn't you? Now, I want you to think that through. When you foolishly, stupidly, wickedly pray this prayer, well, Lord, if you don't want this to happen, then don't let it happen. Lord, if you don't want... Tomorrow to come, don't let the sun come up. Lord, I heard the story of a guy who, who was circling, he was struggling with donuts, and he goes, Lord, if you don't want me to have, if you want me to have a donut this morning, then put a space right in front of the donut shop, a free space, empty space. If there's an empty space in front of the donut shop, I know that it's your will for me to have a donut this morning. And sure enough, he pulled up. And into the empty space, and he goes, Lord, I know I had to circle three times before the empty space became available. See, you're laughing because of how idiotic it sounds. Lord, if you don't want me to sin, if you don't want me to rebel, if you don't want me to disobey, then make a provision that I won't rebel, I won't sin, I, I won't disobey. In this verse, the lusts of men means unlawful human desires. Again, th these are the desires that Paul will later write about that cause war in the soul. The will of God is our safe zone. That's what you should think of. The will of God is our safe zone. The will of God, remember, begins with believing and accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. But remember, for the believer, for the believer, the will of God could include doing what's good. Remember chapter 2, verse 15. Act with respect and love. Chapter 2, verse 17. Honoring God. Chapter 2, verse 17. Being prepared to suffer for doing what's good. Chapter 3, verse 17. Being done with sin. Chapter 4, verse 1. Rejecting evil human desires. That's verse 2. Rejecting the shameful behavior of the Gentiles. That's verse 3. I want to know what the will of God is. The Bible is filled with information about what constitutes the will of God. And by the way, if you're serious about wanting to know the will of God, just go to the back of your Bible, look in your concordance where it says, and this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Whenever you see the expression, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, Instead of seeing the word you, write in the word me. This is the will of God for me. 
And in verse 3, look what it says. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelry, drinking party, abominable idolatries, or everything we did as a freshman in college. Just put freshman in college in parentheses right next to that verse. Now, I want you to think this through. Peter uses the term Gentile not simply to designate non-Jews. But in verse 3, he's using it in the context of an unbeliever or a make-believer. This is the laundry list of the old life. These are our old habits and haunts. This is the place where we amused ourselves and others. And remember, the list is not exhaustive, but he includes lewdness or sensuality. So what does Peter mean by that? What he means by that is these are the things that we used to do that disgust and shock public sensibility or decency. The NIV translates this debauchery. And the New American Standard uses the term licentiousness. Now, debauchery, licentiousness are not words that you and I use in normal speech. The meaning is open and excessive indulgence in sexual sin. That's actually the meaning. Licentiousness is a word that means the outworking or the, or the manifestation of sexual immorality and impurity. You see, ours isn't the first culture that's overstimulated. Ours is not the first culture that's overtly sensualized and sexualized. Peter adds to the list lusts. And again, this isn't simply sexual promiscuity, but this includes all sinful desires of any and every kind. The, the Life Application Bible has a little note. It says, unbelievers pattern their lives after their desires, following those desires lead, for they are unable to control them, unquote. In other words, what Peter is doing is what you already know. Typically, people will say, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. Of course you are. Of course you are. I'm going to do what I think is best for me. Of course you will. I'm going to do not what the Bible says, but what I want to do. Well, it makes perfect sense. That's exactly what an unbeliever does. An unbeliever doesn't take into consideration the mind of Christ. And the unbeliever doesn't take in, in, into consideration the will of God. The unbeliever doesn't take into consideration the revelation of the Bible. But if you have the mind of Christ... If you know the will of God, if you accept the revelation of the Bible, then you're going to understand. So he says, lewdness, lust, drunkenness. Again, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure out what drunkenness is. 
Clearly, it means an excessive use of wine and strong drink. But in that ancient culture, it could also mean anything that you ingest that alters your state of consciousness so much so that you are incapable of controlling your own faculties. That's what it's talking about. Revelries translates a word that was used to describe sexual orgies, but includes the idea of going to a party, getting drunk, getting high, engaging in sexual promiscuity. Again, the point that Peter is making is this is the world of the Gentiles where there are no limits, there are no boundaries, there are no prohibitions. There were often parties and celebrations that took place in the ancient world under the context of celebrating pagan pagan gods and their feast days. Drinking parties are one's involvement. Getting drunk is losing control. So lawless idolatry that he includes in the list or abominable idolatries, which is the plural form, is a reference to specific acts of idolatry. So the implication is that the previous mentioned behaviors all take place in the context of the world in which you used to live, but you no longer live in that world. That's the point that he's making. You used to live that way. You used to think that way. You used to drink that way. You used to party that way. And you've got to understand something. There's two groups of people who are reading what Peter is writing. You've got former Jews who led a life of relative moral uprightness. And then you have people like me. Heathen, pagan, wild man no holds bar. There is no sin that I'm not willing to at least try. And maybe that describes your life. That you grew up in a world where there were no prohibitions. There were no boundaries. There were no inhibitions. You lived in a world where you were able to pursue whatever God-awful thing you wanted to, to, to pursue. And it's followed you into, into the current life into the current circumstances of your life. Paul writes about it in Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, meaning the day of judgment, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust. It's almost everything that's on Peter's list. And then he includes not in strife and envy. What Peter and Paul both want to communicate is that these are behaviors that don't, I repeat, don't honor God. Well, God knows that I'm human. Of course he, he knows that you're human. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. No, you don't, you don't understand. He knows that I'm human and he knows that I'm going to continue to experiment with and involve myself in and communicate with and participate in my old life. And Peter is saying, make a break. He's saying, you that used to be who you are. That's not who you are. This is no kind of behavior that belongs in a believer's life. 
Peter covers the wild spectrum that made up Gentile living in, in an early church document that was called the Didache. It provided instructions, a kind of order of service in the early church. And one portion of the Didache reads, quote, My child, flee from every evil and everything that resembles it. Early on in the church, this is what it said. Make a break. Make a break. It's not good enough for you to abandon sin. You have to embrace the Savior. Now, here's what Peter's not saying. Peter's not saying a Christian can't enjoy a party or can't enjoy life. Clearly, Peter warns the Christian of behavior where the Christian loses control, abandons restraint, and the pursuit of pleasure. So where do our instructions come from? It comes from the Bible. We respect community customs. We don't allow our freedoms to become the source of stumbling to others. And so in verse 4, he says, in regard to these, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You might be so overwhelmed by the ancient language that you miss the point of the passage. And for that reason, I'm going to read it to you in the Living Bible, which is very descriptive and captures the meaning. The Living Bible says, of course, your former friends will be very surprised when you don't eagerly join them anymore in the wicked things they do. And they'll laugh at you in contempt and scorn. Are you new to the Christian life? Have you just begun your journey? Are your friends and your family already commenting on how different you are? And the first thing out of their mouth is, you're no fun anymore. You used to be fun, but now you're zero fun. The, the expression... The flood of dissipation is hardly a familiar word in our day and age, but the word is a picture of being overwhelmed by a world where pleasure and passion and fulfillment are the norm. In other words, without Jesus, without hope of eternity, without Jesus, without the hope of eternity, without some sort of moral restraint or prohibition or constraint, some of you may have grown up in religious circumstances, like I did in part, but rebelled against those religious circumstances. But at least those religious circumstances, you grew up in a home where you knew that something was right and you knew something was wrong. Maybe your mother and father did the best that they could to communicate to you the difference between right and wrong. And you made a choice at some time in your life that you were going to jump off the cliff into the raging torrent that would sweep you into circumstances that you didn't care about the consequences. In the 1960s and the 1970s, we lived in a world where we were willing to ingest any and every kind of drug imaginable. And I can say honestly, 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 the vast majority of people had no idea what drugs could really permanently do to you. A generation later, we know that LSD can fry your brain. A generation later, we know that no matter how many laws they pass, that medicinal marijuana, that, that medicinal, medicinal cannabis is not the right cure for cancer. 
Clearly, Peter warns, and he basically is making the point. (laughs) Your friends and your family might abandon you. Without Jesus, without the hope of eternity, people plunge into a world of self-gratification. Again, the picture is a picture of a person jumping off a cliff into a raging torrent that will eventually sweep them to their own death. The idea is unrestrained indulgence. This is the world where the unbeliever denies himself or herself nothing. They will ask, why would you deny yourself Anything if it makes you happy. And then you say to them, but the drugs never made me happy. The promiscuity never filled the void. The stealing, the lying, the cheating, whatever your drug of choice, whatever your activity of choice, whatever it was that you used to do, that used to consume you, that used to provoke you or provide for you, whatever it was, whatever it was, it didn't help. It didn't forgive your sin and it didn't give you eternal life. So why would you go to church? Why would you read the Bible? Why do you want to worship the Lord? How could that possibly be more fun than a tailgate party, brats, and a Bronco game? Come on. Why would you go to church when it's the only day you have to sleep in? Why in the stinking world will you give your money to the church when you can spend it on yourself? Or for God's sake, save it for a rainy day? Or, okay, look, you can personally give it to a homeless person. Come on. Why in the world would you pray since God has never listened or answered your prayers in the past? Why in the world would you be so foolish as to tell the truth when a lie is going to create so much less stress? How could you possibly suggest monogamy in this day and age? But when a person's life is radically changed by the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit... It makes perfect sense that your friends and family would be amused by your conversion. Okay, look, you're going through a phase. You know, you went through your airplane phase, you went through your Bronco phase, you went through your gangster phase, you went through your Star Wars phase, you went through this phase and that phase, and this is just a phase, and somehow you'll get over it. But then they go from amusement to reluctance. Okay, this is good for you, but it's not good for me, okay? Hey, good for you that you want to pray. Good for you, you want to go to church. Good for you, you want to read the Bible. Good for you, good for you, good for you, you want to be a goody, goody, good for you. It's not for me. But then it goes from amusement to reluctance to contempt. Oh, that's amusing. Oh, that's good for you. You think you're better than me. You actually think you're better than me. Why won't you have that beer? Why don't, hey, come on. Tequila shots, we've always done tequila shots. You think you're better than me. Just because you don't drink beer and just because you don't do tequila shots and just because you don't want to have some marijuana, you think you're better than me. You think you're better than I am. 
And now it isn't just simply reluctance or amusement. It becomes your lifestyle, your choices, your desire to honor God intimidates me. It scares me. It confuses me. And so Peter understands the progression. Some of you will be scorned. Some of you will be abandoned. Some of you will be scorned and abandoned when you refuse to participate in certain activities because your priorities have changed. Not my will, but your will be done. Now your life is a veritable condemnation. Your life becomes not just a life that's lived for Jesus. It becomes an incrimination on their life. And so they call you Jesus freak. Are you ready? Are you ready for the reactions of your family and friends? Are you ready? Are you you ready to face ridicule? Are you ready to be unjustly judged? And then verse 5, look what it says. They'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is the ultimate irony in verse 5. They judge you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's point, they judge you, but they're the ones who are being judged. They judge you because you know and love and want to honor and serve Jesus. They're judging you because you know, honor, and want to love Jesus. And the ultimate irony is that they're going to be judged by Jesus. And this is is our opportunity to be winsome. Our opportunity to be winsome is you're judging me. And guess what? Your judgment is welcome. I welcome your criticism. I welcome your your persecution. I welcome the criticism and the persecution knowing that your judgment is going to maybe result in the loss of our friendship or maybe in the loss of our fellowship. But guess what? There's another judge and there's another judgment that's going to take place. I heard the story of a a concert pianist who was one of the greatest of all time. He went into a rather large auditorium and he played. And when you listen to him play, it was so compelling. It was so moving. It was so wonderful. And the audience got up and they clapped and they cheered and they clapped and they cheered. And he left the stage and the person is saying, they're calling for an encore. They're calling for an encore. And this guy's looking down at his feet. He's almost in tears. They love you and they want you. He goes, there was, he goes, everybody loved you. He goes, one person didn't like it. He goes, who who didn't like it? He says, did you see the old man in the balcony with the gray hair? What What do you care about one old man with gray hair in the balcony? And he said, that's my teacher. You may not get the applause here. There's one person who has to be satisfied with who you are and what you do. Sometimes you may listen to only the single clap of a single person who's sitting on the throne of heaven because what you have done is honoring and pleasing to him. 
The apostle said, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead in Acts chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Do you understand that when they're making fun of you, they're really making fun of Jesus? I want to do what the Bible says. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. I want to do what honors Jesus. I want to obey Christ. How funny is that? And they have no idea. They have zero idea that they're heaping judgment upon themselves. Because they're not simply laughing at you. They're mocking God. And that's what it means in verse 6 when it says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Again, the context of Peter's epistle is to Christians under pain and persecution. We might paraphrase this verse, There are people now dead physically, but alive with God in the spirit, who were judged by the world, but they heard the gospel before they died. They believed. They suffered and died because of their faith. They're living for God. It's better to suffer for Jesus and be with God than to follow the world and be lost. That's the point that he's making. One of the most popular books... ever written is called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It traces the martyrdom of Christians in the early church through the centuries. Brave Christians in every generation brought to jails, brought to the gallow, stoned, hung, beaten, burned, stabbed, shot, drowned. Imagine a way that you can die and that's the way Christians have died. But do you want to Shock a watching world. Just live for Jesus. Just believe that the Bible is true. Just simply obey the Bible and watch the sparks fly. You don't have to take a crowbar to a tasteless work of art. In order to experience suffering and persecution. You don't have to carry protest banners. You don't have to condemn the sinner's lifestyle. You don't have to even say, what you're doing is wrong. All you have to do is just simply do what's right. And the very fact that you do will invite, not just criticism. (laughs) John Moffat quotes... The circumstance of John Huss, who was burned at the stake, he appeared before the Council of Bohemia in 1414. And before his death, he wrote this note to one of his friends. It said, quote, I shall not be led astray by them to the side of evil. Though I suffer at his will temptations, revelings, imprisonments, and deaths, as indeed he too suffered and has subjected his love loved servants to the same trials, leaving us an example that we should suffer for his sake and our salvation. If he suffered being what he is, why shouldn't we? And so, Peter writes, suffering according to the will of God might have some unexpected benefits. It will purify you and prepare you for heaven 
But what we're going to learn a little bit later is that suffering doesn't just purify the saints. It unites the church in verses 7 through 11. And it can, it can, it can glorify God in verses 12 through 19. Why is Peter devoting so much time to this particular subject? Because persecution and suffering is going to become the law of his land. And he wants to prepare people. He wants to prepare their hearts and prepare their minds to honor God, to obey God, to follow Jesus. So why are we getting this? Could it be that the scriptures are preparing us to honor the Lord? To obey the Lord, to prepare our hearts, to purify us, and to unite us, and to glorify Him. Think about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we see in the Bible marching orders. You said to arm ourselves, to bring out the heavy artillery. That in order for us to stand in opposition to the onslaught of the enemy, that we were going to need to put on the mind of Christ, the attitude of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that that would be our attitude. That Lord, we would no longer become like children tossed to and fro. But that Lord, you've placed in us, you've placed us in a powerful vehicle. That when we step on the gas, it goes. And that when we step on the brake, it stops. And that, Lord, you've given us the ability to go forward or to stop or to go back. Lord, I pray for the person who finds himself or herself radically disconnected. Lord, I pray that they would reconnect. Lord, I pray that they would choose to love you and honor you. Lord, I pray that they would listen to Peter's advice radically, fundamentally, make a break with sin. Turn from the sinful lifestyle. Embrace a lifestyle of love and hope, of purity and honor. Lord, we've lived long enough. We've lived long enough in wickedness and sin. We've lived long enough in rebellion. We've lived long enough in disobedience. That part of our life is over with, over with and done. In Jesus' name, amen.